אנשי הדמים, דמים ומימודי. אוי לא יחצו ולייחצו ימי אנשי Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. As we Hasidim like to say today, good Yom Tov. This is a Yutes Kislev special, and we are going to be focusing on the opening of the Rebbe's famous compilation called Hayom Yom. Now before I begin, I want to gratefully acknowledge today's sponsorship and express heartfelt wishes that the Torah and inspiration that we share together should serve as a conduit to bring bracha and hatzlacha and most importantly at a four shleima to Elisha Chaim Ben Berta. May he have a complete healing and a long, happy and fulfilled life. So, the book of Hayom Yom is this remarkable compilation in which, and this is just my own verbiage, may Hashem forgive me if I'm wrong, the essence of Chabad Lubavitch teachings and doctrines are distilled into bite-sized pieces. That is to say, if you go through the year, each day studying small to mid-sized portions of Torah teaching that are found in the daily calendar, during the course of the year, you have a full grasp of what it is that Hasidus demands, wants, and expects from us. I think that proficiency in the book of Hayom Yom means somebody is proficient in the fundamental principles, ideas, ideals, and teachings of Hasidus. And of course, I encourage all of you to take a minute to five minutes a day and to study the Hayom Yom and contemplate and think about its messages on a daily basis. It's a life-transforming thing. As the previous Rebbe said, when one learns or studies in the compilation of Hayom Yom, indeed, Hayom Yom, your day, is a proper day. In 1988, at the Yutes Kislev the Rebbe said that the study of Hayom Yom should begin not with the entry for Yutes Kislev, 
but rather with the excerpt of a letter penned by the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of the Chabad Lubavitch dynasty, Rabbi Sholem Dovber. And it was written in honor of Yutis Kislev in the year 1906. And as you will see, the Rebbe believed that this letter serves really to introduce Hayom Yom, which by extension means to introduce the very essence of Hasidus itself. Now, if I may, before we begin the actual study, and this will be textually based, you can follow along if you have a book of Hayom Yom, or you can Google and find it online. But I just want to say a few brief words about the observance of Yotes Kislev in Hasidic, and perhaps even in the wider Jewish world. So there's a famous statement which is made in Mesechet Brachot, in the final chapter. And it's one of these Torah ideas that actually filters through the writings and commentary of the Rishonim and makes its way into the code of Jewish law. And that is when one encounters a place, a location, a specific geography, where a miracle happened, one is required to respond with a bracha. That encounter, if it happens not on a daily basis, with at least 30 days having elapsed, it should call forth from you a profusion of thanksgiving, acknowledgement and appreciation of Hashem's miracle. Fascinatingly, not only is this applicable for the person who experienced Hashem's deliverance for the duration of their terrestrial lifetime, but it's also applicable to their children and their children's children. In theory, ad infinitum. You know, in just 10 generations, we have significantly more than 4,000 ancestors. I know it sounds like mind-boggling, but this is plain, simple math. That is to say, one person owes his existence to the parentage of over 4,000 individuals. Ten generations isn't that long, a couple of hundred years. And yet, if you know that you are descended from a particular individual to whom a miracle happened in a particular place, you have a responsibility to acknowledge Hashem's kindness because, you know, without that one person, you wouldn't be here. And even if that ancestor had his little miracle, or big miracle, long after their progeny had already been born and had children, we nonetheless continue to be connected to our ancestors and have a sacred duty to make such a brach. Why am I telling this to you? Well, in 1988, the Rebbe introduced this new idea. His big idea was that we should all take the opportunity to mark and celebrate the date of our birth on an annual basis. <laughs> it's the day the greatest miracle in the world happened to you, the miracle of life. The Rebbe makes a very, very careful and convincing case of the halachic background, although typically 
This had not been widespread up until that point. One of the things he suggests is that time and space aren't mutually exclusive. Both represent the concept of sequence. You can't be in two places at one time, and you can't exist in different times simultaneously. In fact, you can only exist in the present. The past is gone, the future is yet to come. Here you are. And so whilst it's possible to revisit a space, a geography you've been to, and it is not possible, to the best of our knowledge, to revisit the time in which something unfolded in the past, nonetheless, there is a certain corollary between arriving at a place and arriving at a time. And that's because Torah chooses to view time not in linear fashion, but rather in circular fashion. The word shana, that means year, comes from the word shinui, or changes, as in the seasons of the year. From a Torah perspective, there are six seasons of the year. And this is true from the perspective of weather. Of course, if you live, as I do, in a place like Toronto, the weather extremes are indeed profound in the land of Israel. They're generally not as extreme. The freezing winters, the boiling summers, are a little bit different when we get closer to the equator. But nonetheless, there are seasons. There's a winter season in Israel. It's called the rainy season. And yes, on occasion, you even get snow in places like Yerushalayim, Tzfat, and even Hebron. The point is that when a person goes through the cycle of changes and they return to the original date or anniversary, they've actually come back, come back to the same place, kind of. Well, it goes like this. Each iota of time, just like every iota of space, is brought into existence by God. Hashem has a series of mazalot, angelic forces or energy fields, if you will, which are harnessed or tapped to bring life, vitality, and reality into each particular time. Imagine, if you can, the film strips of old, you know, before this age of digitization, when people actually had a strip. <laughs> if you're my age, you've got to remember that. And what were these film strips made of? How did you create what became known as a motion picture? And the answer is lots of frames. It would be impossible to roll the tape with the speed that we're doing today on the computer. I mean, HD or high definition simply wouldn't be possible without computerization if we're still using the old-fashioned films. But it serves to illustrate a point. If each film is just slightly nanosecond altered, slightly altered, and it moves at speed, eventually it looks like you have something in motion. Well, time is kind of like that. Each moment of time is a moment in and of itself. It's not frozen because time stands still for no one. 
So we're constantly, so to speak, moving through the vicissitudes of time. And yet, time, which represents cycle, and cycle, which is circular, is kind of like a spiral. So you know when you're going in a circle, but in a spiral circle, you're always a little bit higher insofar as the height or depth is concerned, but with regard to the orbit itself, you're right back where you started. It isn't to say that time simply repeats itself, of course it doesn't, but the same cycle of time repeats itself, beginning with the hours that are repeated each day, the weeks, the months, and of course the year. And we have this Torah principle that when you arrive at a particular time or the anniversary of that time, the same spiritual force comes back to life. This is the idea of Mazalogover. I've talked about this in great length with many, many sources in some of my classes about celebrating your Jewish birthday. And if you want to know more about this and see source material, I refer you to those videos. I'm pretty sure they're on my channel. If not, you can find them on Chabad.org. I don't want to belabor this point. I do want to say this. Whatever it was, on a spiritual level, that enabled you to be born, that force is reanimated every year on your birthday. And so, if there was a divine force through which Hashem brought His salvation, the system, if you will, that Hashem employed, to bring the saving acts to you at a particular time. When you come to the anniversary, it's like it's happening all over again. And as such, coming to an anniversary isn't that different from re-arriving in the same location, finding yourself in the same coordinates with a miracle actually occurred. Of course, you can travel to a particular place. And we don't believe you can travel to a particular time. That's sci-fi stuff. However, they're not mutually exclusive. And we have this idea that is richly developed and documented, especially in the teachings of Hasidus, that coming to a particular time means that the same forces are once again at play. So, if today's Yutas Kislev, and today the Alter Rebbe experienced miraculous deliverance, well, that means that we, as his progeny, have the right or perhaps the obligation to express our thanksgiving to Hashem. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. No, I'm not an actual blood descendant of the Alter Rebbe. But, consider this. In one of the most famous verses in the entire Torah, this is part of the Shema that a Jew is supposed to recite at least twice daily. We hear about the mitzvah of loving Hashem. We hear about the mitzvah of engaging heart, mind, the very essence of life. And then the Torah says, V'shinantam levanecha. You should teach this to your children. As the Maharal of Prague points out, there's an inherent problem with the word levanecha. It's plural. Suppose you only have 
one child. Are you not responsible for raising or educating him? That would be ridiculous. This prompts Rashi to share a very interesting comment as he elucidates the verse. And he tells us, it doesn't say Levincha. It's not talking about your blood children. It's not talking about biological progeny, but rather, Elo HaTalmidim. When the Torah says, teach your children, it means to say, teach your pupils, your students. Or as we say in the vernacular, your circle of influence. That might well include your own biological children, but it isn't limited to them. Now, why would the Torah employ this language? Clearly, we, we have a need to understand the word levonecha as something other than biological children due to its plural nature. But why would the Torah convey it in those terms? If the Torah wanted to tell you, teach your students, well, then just say so. Why did the Torah say levonecha? Well, that's a fair question. And when the Torah wants to talk to you about biological children, for example, when it comes to the Torah's description of the mitzvah to recount the story of the Exodus annually on the night of Pesach, the Torah says, Ki vincha, when your child or son will ask. So Rashi says, This is not an anomaly. We found this everywhere, across scriptural prose, you will find the same syntax showing up again and again. Pupils, disciples, those who are profoundly influenced are referred to in familial terms, like a child. Where do we see that? Well, we see it in a verse that speaks about our relationship with God, but it's about what God has taught us to do. Not our intrinsic or inherent bond with God. When the Torah says, The Torah is talking to us about learning Hashem's lessons, studying Hashem's Torah and being able to implement, to download, to actually put into practice the things we learn. Because when the Torah finishes the statement, it tells us about things we should put into practice. Rashi goes further and he says, no, this isn't just about God. This is a, an expression that's found in the second book of Kings. And it speaks about the children of the prophets, but they weren't their biological children. Rather, they're students, they're disciples, they're acolytes. Rashi says, well, maybe that's a prophet thing. Maybe regular Torah teaching doesn't qualify, but it does. The because the Melech, the King Chizkiyahu, who was a great Torah scholar and taught and instructed all of the Jewish people, but especially the Kohen, the Kohanim and Levim, limed Torah l'cho Yisrael. And when he wanted to speak to the people with whom he studied Torah, he said, Bonai, alti sholu, my children. Don't forget the things I've taught you. Take them to heart. Rashi curiously goes a step further. And he says, 
you must know that this relationship is two-way. As children are referred to, as disciples, pardon me, are referred to as children, so too, so too, a Rebbe is referred to as a father too. Shenemar, as it is stated, and this is in the emotional reaction that is prophetic and documented in the actual scripture that Elisha had when he saw Eliohanavi go heavenward in a chariot of fire, also known in English as disappearing in a flash of light or in a flash. He said, Ovi, Ovi, my father, my father, Rechav Yisrael, the chariot of Israel, etc. And then he rent his garments. So he uses the terminology father and he mourns. He rends his garments like somebody just lost a parent. Well, by virtue of this Torah teaching, and of course there's much to say about it, but this is just a little introduction. Yutas Kislev could be a great deal of celebration. The Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe of our Rebbe's 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 Rebbe, Rebbe, and of course our Rebbe is the direct descendant of the Alter Rebbe too, but the Rebbe, if the Rebbe is a father, and the previous Rebbe is a grandfather, then the Rebbe Shab is a great-grandfather, and so on and so forth, and the Alter Rebbe is an ancestor. So we have the right and perhaps obligation to thank God on this day for a great miracle has happened to us. That's true. But that's not what Yutas Kislev is about. There are other Hasidic groups that celebrate the saving of their leader, their Torah teacher, their Rebbe, and that's certainly appropriate. But Yutas Kislev is seen in very, very different terms. As we'll see in this letter, Yutas Kislev is referred to as a day of redemption for us. Not a day in which we commemorate the Alter Rebbe's freedom or a miracle that happened to a proverbial or euphemistic ancestor, but rather a day when something happens for us, even if we weren't alive in 1798. And it's a day in which something is happening for us all over again. And with that little preface, I will direct your attention to the opening of Ayom Yom. It's an excerpt of a letter. This letter was penned, as mentioned, by the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab. The reason he penned this letter was because due to his communal affairs, he was not able to be in the town of Lubavitch and participate with the Hasidim on what is arguably the most important day on the Hasidic calendar. There was kind of a gloomy mood about this. The Rebbe is away and Hasidim are separated. So several days prior, on the 16th of Kislev, the Rebbe Rashab penned a letter. And this letter was his way of participating with the Hasidim at the Fabrengens, at the joyous and heart-stirring get-togethers that they would together hold on Yotas Kislev, which is traditional. That's what we do on Yotas Kislev. At a Fabrengen, oftentimes, ideas, ideals, concepts, 
are developed, clarified, shared. Here, the Rebbe Rashab went out on a limb and he recorded his view of Yotas Kislev, essentially highlighting and elucidating for us all what this day actually means. And fascinatingly, the Rebbe chooses this letter to introduce the calendar. Now, to be fair, the Hayom Yom compilation isn't about Yotas Kislev, it's about Chasidus. And whilst Yotas Kislev might be an important day on the Hasidic calendar, it doesn't represent the essence of Hasidus per se. I mean, Yotas Kislev may be an important day for Hasidim, but why would the beginning or what serves really as the preface for the entire book or compilation begin with an emphasis on Yotas Kislev? Well, perhaps the reason is this. Hayom Yom, a calendar, is the first of a genre to begin on Yotas Kislev. And perhaps the Rebbe is explaining that the calendar of a chosid, it's a different kind of calendar. There's something about the day it begins and the day it ends. In other words, our annual experience as chassidim, our going through the various vicissitudes of time or changes of time as they unfold, what we would call the concept of shana or shinui, begins and ends today. Yudches Kislev is the end of the calendar. Yudches Kislev is the beginning. Prior to Hayom Yom, we are unaware of any formalization of that idea. It should be noted that the study of Tanya, the foundational seminal work of Hasidus Chabad, which is said to be a representation, a true expression of the teachings of the Magad and Baal Shem Tev, the study begins on Yutis Kislev and ends on Yutches Kislev, but that shows up for the first time in Hayom Yom. The study of what Hasidim refer to as Chitas, or Chumash, Tehillim, and Tanya, the Tanya was introduced through the vehicle of the Hayom Yom. So this is the first time, the first time we hear of Yutis Kislev heralding a beginning rather than being a day of importance. So as a day of importance, we, we believe that the incarceration of the Alter Rebbe and the suffering that he endured was not personal, but rather it was a, a battle against the Hasidic movement itself. The Alter Rebbe said so in, in as many words in a letter that he penned immediately after his release. The letter is found in two forms. In a longer form, it's simply dated Achare Yutas Kislev Tov Kuf Nuntes, which is after Yutas Kislev in the year 1798. The first version is a slightly longer. It's written to the Alter Rebbe's lifelong friend and peer, fellow disciple of the Magad, fellow Rebbe, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev. It comes across to us in 
a paragraph of introduction, and then a full three paragraphs. A very similar letter, in much shorter prose and form, was also sent to the biological grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, the Tzadik Reb Baruch of Mezhibush. And it should be noted that although certain historians question the veracity of that exchange, saying that there was no closeness between these two great Torah leaders, that in fact is pure ignorance. Because, as the Alter Rebbe writes, until the year 1802, there was a tremendous amount of affection and affiliation between the two. At a certain point, the Baruch and the Alter Rebbe went on divergent paths, Baruch believing that his ideas were the true representation of the Bashamta's teachings, and Alter Rebbe having a totally different view of things, as we'll hear later on in this letter. At any rate, these are the two letters that the Alter Rebbe sent, a, long, a longer form letter, and that letter is written to Rebbe Levitzchav a shorter form, much conciser form, but the same content though, written to Rebbe Baruch. Let me share with you the words that the Alter Rebbe penned to Rebbe Levi Yitzchak. The Alter Rebbe expressed himself in the humblest of terms. He said, who am I that Hashem's name should be magnified and sanctified through somebody as lowly as myself? And he writes, quote, Ki ikir Asher samu pneihem lilchem al teiras habal shemtev v'talmidav v'talmidetamidadavke. This is a battle against the teachings, the doctrines of the Baal Shemtev, his disciples, and the disciples of his disciples. Quote. That essentially refers to three generations of Hasidic Torah teaching. This all came from God. And the Alter Rebbe viewed it as it came to him that Hashem provided him with the opportunity giving him the merit of serving as the face of the Hasidic movement. Being the one to suffer on behalf of the Hasidic movement. And he maintained that his salvation came because of his unique level of support for the Jewish people, the only true indigenous inhabitants of Israel, the Holy Land. In 1776, just two years prior, pardon me, 22 years prior to the liberation of Yutes Kislev, the events of Yutes Kislev, the Alter Rebbe himself was journeying to the land of Israel, led by the eldest disciple of the Maggid of Mizrich, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk, or Mendel at Horodoker. In the end, Alter Rebbe is persuaded to return back to Eastern Europe because without a charismatic, brilliant Torah leader like the Alter Rebbe, the Hasidim maintained, the Hasidic movement could not survive in its near infancy. The Alter Rebbe does agree to return to Eastern Europe, but only after accepting upon himself the responsibility of collecting and sending funds to the Holy Land of Israel. Fascinatingly enough, it is that which formed the essence 
the foundation of the accusations against him. He was accused of high treason. He was accused of supporting the Tsar's arch enemy, the Sultan of Turkey. You know, at that time, the land of Israel, which I think was already being called Palestine, was a Turkish province, or a province of the Turkish Empire. So, the Turks and the Russians did not get along. And here, the Alta Rebbe is presented as sending funds, essentially, to Turkey, or to a Turkey vassalage. Incredibly, the Alta Rebbe doesn't rue his support for the land of Israel. He says, it is that activity that brought me salvation. If you look at it in natural means, it's that activity that nearly cost him his life. Clearly, the Alta Rebbe does not view the incarceration and liberation as something that is, shall we say, of natural means. This is a reflection of something much deeper, something much loftier. It's the symptoms of a spiritual issue, a spiritual challenge, a challenge that was then ultimately aimed at the teachings of Hasidists themselves. So the Alter Rebbe views Yotis Kislev as the day in which Hashem has taken him out of the narrow straits of prison, has elevated his standing, not as an individual. So we're not celebrating Yotis Kislev because our ancestor or spiritual ancestor had a miracle happen to him. We're celebrating Yutes Kislev because we as Hasidim, and for that matter, the entire Jewish world, which has been immeasurably enriched by the teachings and doctrines and practices and even music of Hasidus, the Hasidus almost didn't make it. This then is the day that whatever opposition there was to the promulgation, to the expression, to the development, to the building of Hasidus, that all of that goes away. Nalta Rebbe, with tremendous self-sacrifice, is blazing a new trail in Torah teaching, in serving of Hashem. And there's a problem. It's what's called in the vernacular a kitrog, a heavenly decree. The decree is rescinded on Yotes Kislev. Nalta Rebbe writes similar words to the Baruch Mezhebuzheh. He says, Loi olai. This was not about me, he says. It's about me too. <laughs> the Alter Rebbe was a key element in the dissemination of Hasidus, but it wasn't about him. It's, the, it's against the Baal Shem Tev and the subsequent two generations of Hasidic leadership and teaching. And the Alter Rebbe continues to express his humility slightly different order. He says, who am I? Such a lowly creature that Hashem's name should be glorified through me. But it's the merit of the Holy Land, which is called the Land of Life, that has stood by for us. So now we know that Yutis Kislev is not just a day in which the Alter Rebbe had a miracle. It's, for lack of perhaps better terminology, the day the Hasidic movement itself is vindicated. Okay, so what is the essence of Yutas Kislev? Now we can begin. 
Yutes Kislev, the 19th of Kislev. The Rebbe begins by referring to it as Hachag, the festival, Asher Podo Bishalom Nafshenu, the festival in which God has redeemed our soul in peace. The festival in which God has redeemed our soul in peace. He doesn't say the festival in which God saved the life of the Alter Rebbe, the festival in which God redeemed our soul in peace. Well, the origin of these words, of course, is the book of Psalms. But the fascinating thing is that the definition of Yutis Kislev as a festival that commemorates or observes Pidiya Bishalom of a Nefesh or the redemption of a soul comes from the Alter Rebbe himself once again. In that very same letter that I just shared with you, this letter, by the way, is printed in the Alter Rebbe's, the book of the Alter Rebbe's letters. It's uh, entry 59 and 60. The Alter Rebbe finishes the letter to Reb Levi Yitzchabar with the following words. Ukishahayinu kore. He refers to himself in plural terms. When we were reading the Sefer Tehillim, the book of Tehillim, the Pasuk, Pada Bishalim Nafshi, in the verse which is found in Psalm 55. God redeemed my soul in peace. Before I had a chance to read the next verse. I read as I was reading this verse, and before I had a chance to move on to the next verse, I went out to peace. And he says, I'll end in peace. So what does that mean? It means that the Alter Rebbe was incarcerated, sitting in a prison cell. And when he read the words, Pada B'Shalom Nafshi, before he moved on, he was informed that he was a free man. And to the Alter Rebbe, this was extremely meaningful. It wasn't a coincidence, happenstance. It was God's way of telling him something. It was a telling and compelling identification of what was really going on. You know, it's like a way to diagnose that which the eye can't necessarily see. So the doctor will look at symptoms, and by virtue of those symptoms, he'll come to the conclusion that such and such is going on. It's almost as if the Alter Rebbe is identifying the deeper motif, the energy, the moment, with the words, Padav Nafshi. Incidentally, in the letter to Rabbi Baruch of Mezhubosh, where it's written in shorter form, he says, When I read the words, doesn't go into the details, didn't move on. When I read these words, I went out into peace. I finish in peace. So the Rebbe Rashab, understanding from this letter that the Alter Rebbe is identifying the central theme of Yutes Kislev as the Chag. It's the festival because we subsequently started to observe Yutes Kislev with great joy on an annual basis. The Chag, Asher Poda B'Sholem Nafshenu. Here's something very interesting just happened. 
In the book of Tehillim it says, Pada B'Shalom Nafshi. The Alter Rebbe writes, although he's referring, in the, especially in the letter to Rilev Yitzchak in the plural sense, when it comes to the Pasuk, he says, nafshi. he says, Yatsati, not Yatsanu. In the letter to Rebaruch, it says simply, so the Rebbe Rashab's understanding of this is that it is not the redemption, the freeing of the Alter Rebbe's soul. It's the freeing of our souls. Simply stated. Prison literally restricts one's freedom or movement. Being arrested means you can't go elsewhere. People can be incarcerated in their own home. We call that a gilded cage. And as many of you might well remember from the recent lockdowns and the various quarantines that were imposed upon us, it's not a particularly liberating or good feeling to be locked up even in your own house. People who have experienced home incarceration don't enjoy it. You don't, we don't even realize <laughs> how, how good it is to be able to leave our homes. Sometimes we just want to stay home. That's fine as long as you're choosing to stay home, but house arrest is a matter that is very different. Because then you're forced to stay home and not allowed to go elsewhere. There's a Torah euphemism called pasbasali. In English they translate that as bread in the basket or in the pantry. The moment there's no food in the pantry, everybody's hungry. As long as there's food in the pantry, I, I ate an hour ago, I'm fine. It's the loss of the ability to express myself that becomes shackling and debilitating. Yutis Kislev is the day in which Hashem says, we, you and I, ordinary people, can redeem our souls from that which inhibits it. Let me spell that out. I have a neshama. You have a neshama. What does the neshama really want? What does it yearn for? What are its aspirations and dreams? In as many words, closeness to the Creator. Your neshama and my neshama have common objectives. Our bodies have very different objectives. Our corporeal or bodily side is like an animal. Mine cares about me. Yours cares about you. There's an expression in the Talmud, Ein Adam chote velo lo. Why would I sin for you to benefit? Why should I steal for you to get the money? That makes no sense. We all, at times, behave inappropriately, but that's because of a perceived profit or benefit for us. Because we're selfish creatures because we're driven by our own carnal desires. The neshama, very different. So for example, as the Mittler Rebbe taught, if you want to get an honest take on a question or doubt you might be faced with, 
it's always good to speak to another Yid. A Yid who's actually well disposed towards you and cares about that which is good, righteous, and holy. Why? He said it's simple mathematics. The moment your neshama wants to do something good, your animal soul is like, what are you doing? I'm not interested in that. And that's where the tug of war begins. But my animal soul, well, he's an animal. He only cares about himself. Animals don't know the meaning of altruism per se. Animals can love, and love with great intensity. But it's self-expression. Altruism is when I'm not very happy about this. But I'm doing it because it's something I know to be right. That's the meaning of altruism. My animal cares about pleasuring myself. Your animal cares about pleasuring yourself. If you or I have a question, the Yetzer Tov, our evil, our good inclination, will speak up in the loudest voice it can. He'll say, go ahead, embrace the situation. And at that very moment, a very dark and powerful voice will come along and say, you've got to be kidding. Who do you think you are? That's ridiculous. Or whatever it needs to dissuade you from the path of righteousness. So say we get together and have a conversation about this. Your animal soul, the moment it senses it's got nothing to gain, goes to sleep. This isn't my issue, it says. But your godly soul is altruistic. It's selfless rather than selfish. And so your godly soul cares as much about me doing the right thing as my godly soul. And as such, the Mithlet Rebbe said, we have two nefeshuli kisses, two godly souls, who together are able to contend with one animal. It's a wild animal, but he's outnumbered. You see, my friends, our souls have all kinds of lofty, selfless, spiritual aspirations that aren't met. We're basically kind of shackled. The neshama is essentially in house arrest. It's alive, but it's not able to express itself. Imagine the pain that a person might endure when, when they're crippled and they want to be able to move about. Imagine a person who's trapped in a body that's comatose. I, I can't even imagine the pain of the loss of freedom, the loss of expression. That's what the neshama feels like, oftentimes. It's just that we don't even realize this. Deep down, the neshama is gnawing at us. We usually misdiagnose that. We think, ah, I'm not happy. I'm not happy because my neighbor has a more beautiful home. If only I could have a nicer home, add some square footage or maybe some horsepower to my car or have more stylish clothing, then I'd be happy and we become addicted to materialism, thinking that it brings us happy, happiness, pardon me, and we go through life unhappy because we're filling round holes with square pegs. The reason that you're feeling unsettled is because you have a yearning for holiness. And the poor Neshama never makes his voice heard. Well, that is till you Kislev. Now, when you study the teachings of Hasidus, it is profoundly empowering.
It enables you to redeem your soul. Now your neshama can express itself. So Yitzhak Kislev, as it was, in a literal sense, freedom granted to the Alter Rebbe, freedom of movement, freedom of expression, on a spiritual level, was and is being granted to each and every one of us because when Hasidus can be studied, we can find a key to unlock our own cells. Furthermore, the Rebbe Rasha brought, it's a time in which which or the highest nafshenu nitanlonu. It's a time in which the life, the light, and vitality was of our souls was given to us. That sounds very strange. I mean, I wasn't born yet, this case, look. What does it mean? The, what is what is light and vitality? What does that mean? The energy of my soul is given to me on this day. That's a good question. <laughs> it needs a good answer. I should tell you as a... Let's take a step back for a moment and tell you that the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, on Yutas Kislev in the year 1923, there was a Fabrengen, and he said, he began on the eve of the 20th of Kislev by saying, I have in my possession a letter I received from my father. He wrote this when he was in Moscow, the year 1902. I'm sorry for saying the wrong date before. In the year 1902, on the 16th day of Kislev. And the Rebbe said, it's quite astounding what I'm going to share now. I read this letter every Yutis Kislev, he said. In the way we read the Megillah on Purim. Why do we read the Megillah on Purim? Because it tells the story, not the history or what was, but rather it tells us about Hashem's ever present hand in everything that unfolds. We hear it through the historic narrative of Purim, the Purim saga, but it's actually not something that happened. It's something that's happening on Purim and really all the time. It's a beautiful teaching from the Baal Shem Tev on the Mishnah. A person who reads the Megillah. Lamafreya means literally out of order. So if you read chapter 5 and then you go back to chapter 3, even if you heard all of the words, I know what you're thinking. Why would somebody do that? Well, simple. You walk into Shul and they're up to chapter 5. So you figure, oh, got to hear every word of the Megillah. So I'll listen from chapter 5 till the end. And then at the next minion, I'll listen from the beginning of the Megillah until chapter 5 and then I can leave. No, you can't, says the Mishnah, because you will not have fulfilled your mitzvah. You need to hear every single word, every syllable of the Megillah read properly from a kosher Megillah in order, in order to fulfill the mitzvah. So the, the Mishnah comes along and says, if you read it to Mafreya, if you read it backwards, lo Said the holy Baal Shem Tev, Megillah, a person who reads or listens to the story of the Megillah, it's history. Something that once happened, 
It's nice. It's a miracle. I take the opportunity to thank Hashem. But you don't understand and realize that the themes and ideas, the motif of the Megillah is actually about right now. It's extremely relevant, especially in our exilic times. If you don't realize that, if that's the message, that message is lost on you, you didn't fulfill the mitzvah of listening to the Megillah altogether. You missed the point of Purim. Purim is not merely an observance or the observation of a miracle that once happened. Purim represents the relevancy of Hashem's continuous involvement every day of our lives. Sure, we observe it on Purim when we arrive at that day, but its influence is felt all year. Similarly, Yutes Kislev is a day of great importance, not because it commemorates something that once happened. Yutes Kislev is a day of great importance because it represents something that's happening every day. Uniquely observed on Yutes Kislev, but not limited to those 25 hours. And this, I think, is the point that the previous Rebbe makes. I read it, he says, like the Megillah. I read this letter understanding that it communicates in, an, in, a, in a profound, energetic way the relevancy of Yutas Kislev. The Friedrich Rebbe said, I, I want to read the letter right now to all of you. And he goes on to talk about surficial experiences. I'm reading a letter. It doesn't really change you. You want to change, you need to study, you need to contemplate. We're taking the time to study this letter because I'm hoping that I, along with you, can be changed by it. Just preparing for this class, I think, I hope, has modified me a little. Because I understand this letter better than I ever did before, thanks to you. And I have to be able to clarify this. I have to really work on figuring it out. And use lots of books to get there. And the point then is, Friedrich Gerber says, why am I reading it? Re- reading a letter is makif, it's atmospheric. I was present at a reading. He says, nonetheless, I'm not going to refrain from, from doing it. Because you need to hear this, he said. You need to hear this. And the previous Rebbe, as is documented in Sefer HaSichus Tafresh Pedalet, on page 59, went on to read the letter out loud, word for word. And when he came to this idea of He talked about it. He said, what does this mean? And he said, the verbiage is precise. Light and vitality. The Friedrich Rebbe said, there are many explanations for this that are found in Hasidus, but I want to give you a straightforward, simple explanation. He says, What does life look like without light? A non-illuminated life. I called the class Light of My Life. He says it looks like a person who is alive, but not energized. For example, he said a person is very sick. The doctors can check and say, is the patient alive? And the answer is yes. But the patient is lifeless. They're alive in a lifeless fashion. That means with no energy or no illumination. 
The Friedrich Rebbe went on to give an example. He said there was a person who lived in the capital city of Tsarist Russia called Peterburg. And he said this was a person who, unfortunately, tragically would violate major tenets of the Torah, like eating kosher, keeping Shabbat, on a regular basis. But when it came to the high moments on the Jewish calendar, inspirational times, like Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, he would weep. He would be moved to tears. He would sob. And he was like a different person. When it came to Simcha's Torah, he wasn't just a morose fellow. He would dance with great fervor and great joy. And then he'd kind of go back to the way he was. When it came to Yutas Kislev, he would join the Hasidim in their celebrations. And then, well, he'd go back to the way he was. And the Friedrich Rebbe said, he was alive. It's life. No light. No light. So light means something that's continuous. Not something where somebody is alive, so at times they can come to life and then fade again. This is one understanding of What then does it mean? It means that Yutis Kislev was a day that Hashem allowed us to be able to connect to this energy, which is Hasidic teaching, as we'll learn, and it can allow us to experience a vibrancy, a, a sense of exuberance and joy in our Yiddishkeit continuously. Not just that we can have a vibrancy, but a continuous vibrancy. The Rebbe once explained it in a different way. And this is found in the Hoysafas and the additions to Lakutasichas in Chilik Beis under the title Yutas Kislev. The Rebbe said that Ur Vachayas Nafshenu represent two different forms of life. There is life itself, which is not unique to a particular limb. For example, a person is alive. There is no part of you that's more or less alive. There are different body parts that have different functions. You hear with your ears, you see with your eye, you think with your brain, and the primary amount of one's life or consciousness is in the brain. Sustaining an injury in your heel doesn't disable you from functioning or thinking clearly, unless the pain is unbearable, but other than pain, when a person sustains an injury or concussion to the head, it's not just a question of pain, it's they lose consciousness. They lose an overexpression of life altogether. So the Rebbe goes on to explain, he says, and he uses various examples from, the, from Jewish law that represent the concept of what can bring a sense of refreshment to somebody. And he said, everybody is refreshed equally by an amount called a choiseves, which is like a, a succulent date. That's, that's the amount of food that we're not allowed to eat in Yom Kippur, whether you're Hulk Hogan or an infant. Well, infants are exempt from fasting, but you know what I mean. A very small person, a very large person. Because there's a certain amount of food that our sages deemed to be refreshing. For how long? Well, that depends who you are. There's always going to be a sense of refreshment. And then we go into how much food we eat, and we all need different amounts. A very large person probably needs more food than a very small person. And it'll also process the food he eats or she eats differently. And so the Rebbe says that in the nefesh, there is the individual, so to speak, limbs that function as they do in Avastarab Nasan, for example. It says that the heel is called Malacham Avastarab Adam. It's called the 
the deadest part of a person. Thick skin. You know, you break the glass under the chuppah with your heel, not your nose, or even your elbow. It is definitely the deadest part. But you need heels. It's very hard to walk without heels. Painful, in fact. You can't even stand if you don't have a heel to stand on. How long can you stand on your tippy toes for? When it comes to a mitzvah, there is or and then chayas, the general vitality and the specific vitality. There is a person who performs a mitzvah with a sense of joy and exuberance because he or she is doing the bidding of God. And then there is the joy, excitement, the passion that we take in the particulars of a mitzvah. So you learn about a mitzvah, you hear about it, understand it, you get much more excited about it. The Rebbe goes on in this sicha, and it's beyond the purview for us to properly study it. It's a study in and of itself to talk about this idea that the study of Hasidus enables each and every one of us not only to perform mitzvahs in a superficial or bodily way, but to immerse ourselves, mind, heart, and soul. This is about inner change. It is through the study and apprehension of the deepest secrets of Torah that the deepest part of our psyche is moved, stimulated, in fact, transformed. Why is that important? Well, very simple. Because anybody can do a mitzvah. The question is, how much of us is invested, engaged, or involved? And invariably, if you're only performing a mitzvah on the surface, your heart's not in it. Your mind isn't excited. Your imagination isn't stirred. How well do you really do the mitzvah? You can go through, for, through it in a perfunctory fashion, but it's very easily for it to become nothing more than habitual. The goal of Hasidus is to infuse light and vitality, a sense of positive energy, a sense of uplifting, inspirational, emotional engagement in everything we do in our Avedis Hashem. The book of Tanya, as the Altar Rebbe says right at the beginning, is designed to show you how you can achieve beficha, in the manner of speaking, uvelvavcha, transformation of the heart from within, la and of course to carry that into the realm of action. Urvachayas, it happens on two levels. It happens because when we learn chassidus, broadly speaking, our Yiddishkeit is invigorated, and the specifics of our observance, each mitzvah, is taken to the next level. But if there was a heavenly decree that ordinary people like you and me couldn't study or learn or appreciate the teachings of Hasidus, we'd never get that. Hence, This day is Rosh Hashanah for Hasidus. You heard that right. Rosh Hashanah for Hasidus. Truth be told, this um, letter penned in 1901 or 1902 
1901 to be more accurate, probably November of 1901, as, uh, was actually first heard by the previous Rebbe from his father. He overheard his father saying, I'm pretty sure Yitis Kislev is uh, like Rosh Hashanah. He said, Korev Li is Rosh Hashanah. It, it's likely, it, it might well be Rosh Hashanah. He didn't, um, he didn't elaborate, but he said, it might well be. And in the original letter, it says, this day is kind of like Rosh Hashanah. He says, Korev Hadover, Hayeim Hazeh, it's likely that this day is Rosh Hashanah. But the previous Rebbe omitted those words, and when the Rebbe printed the transcription of the letter, he doesn't say Karav Hadavar. He simply states, it is Rosh Hashanah for Chassidus. As the Rebbe says in that very same Sicha, the Rebbe Zokt, referring to his Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, as Yutes Kislev is Reish Hashanah So how'd that happen? Well, let me share with you something fascinating which is found in an edited mimer of our Rebbe. And then I'd like to share a little story. So this is a mimer which begins with the words L'chadodi. It was recited by the Rebbe in Shabbos Parshish Kisetzi, the 13th of Elul, the year was 1954, and it's, a, it's called V'chasana It's based on the Torah teaching that the previous Rebbe delivered at the Rebbe's Kabbalah's Panim, at the reception prior to the Rebbe's Chuppah, when the Rebbe and the Rebbe got married. And the Rebbe delivered his own Maimer. What's unique about it is that teachings of all of the Rabbeim are mentioned. And the previous Rebbe, when he spoke at the Rebbe's Chasana, in 1929 or 28, he said that by mentioning the Torah teachings of my forebearers, I bring forth their presence. He said, previous generations come to a chasana. And he said, I'm inviting them by reciting words of Torah. Hasidim traditionally recite this mimer at their own wedding, inviting the neshamas of our holy Rabbeim to join us. So there's a, there's a teaching, a teaching of the second Rebbe, of the middle Rebbe. It's a teaching which also appears from the, in the writings of the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe who we're talking about. And when the Rebbe Rashab said this, he said, perhaps, one might perhaps say, but when the previous Rebbe spoke about this idea at the Rebbe's Chasana, he omitted the words, he didn't say, he simply stated it. This is how things are. This is the Torah connection. So in a footnote here, and this is an edited mimer, the Rebbe says there's a known story. A story about the previous Rebbe as a young man traveling to visit his in-laws in the city of Keshenev, the Ukrainian city of Keshenev, or Moldovan city. 
And the previous Rebbe's father-in-law, Harav Achosad Avram Schneerson, says to, asks his son-in-law to share teachings of Hasidus. He says, just open the faucet. It'll come. And he repeats a particular idea. This very mimer. And he said it. That's how it is. When he came back to Lubavitch, he, de- he was debriefed by his father, and he told his father about this whole event and how he had said over the chassidus. You know, the father said, just open the faucet. The chassidus will come in. So the Rebbe Rashab said to him, where did you get that from? I never said this as factually, factual statement. I said, So the Friedrich Rebbe said, Aha, what's by you? What's by you, perhaps, is by me, already a Dover Vade is certain. So on a, on a literal level, we're talking about humility. The humility of the Rabbeim who didn't want to, you know, kind of say things on their own, preferred to have it a source for it. But in fact, in the way we view a Rebbe, that's, that's certain to us. And it has a lot to do with what we'll call Torah intuition. Let me share with you a little story. I've shared this before. But the story of tzaddikim is always, is always meaningful. So this is probably one of the lesser known stories about Israel's late Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. And it's uh, when his life is literally saved by the Rebbe. It's July 23rd. The year is 1968. It's a full year after Ariel Sharon successfully led a powerful division into the Six-Day War as a major general in the IDF. He's in New York, he's in the States, and before returning to Israel, General Sharon comes to Lubavitch World Headquarters at 770 Eastern Parkway to have a face-to-face meeting with the Rebbe. He had a unique relationship. The Rebbe reached out to him after the terrible tragedy that happened with his, with his son, and there were, there were many encounters. The Rebbe is speaking to Ariel Sharon, and Ariel Sharon is kind of like checking his, checking his watch. So the Rebbe says, why are you checking your watch? And Sharon says, well, I got a flight scheduled. I'm just, gonna, just watching the clock because I got to get to the airport. And the Rebbe suggested that Sharon stay on and take a different flight. Amazingly, at least to me, Ariel Sharon complied, and they continued to have a very long conversation, a private conversation, I might add. Well, later that night, LL Flight 426 took off, and it was hijacked by three monsters, terrorists of the PFLP. It's like a lefty communist uh, terrorist organization founded in 67. They were on the plane and hijacked it because Ariel Sharon was supposed to be on the plane. He would not have survived. The Boeing 707 was hijacked on the London Lud leg of the flight and it was diverted to the airport in Algiers the capital, capital of Algeria. 
The Jewish passengers, passengers were held for five weeks before being released. They seemed, according to all accounts, to be looking for something important and were enraged that, that something or somebody wasn't aboard. This basically revealed that the entire operation had an objective to capture and to murder Ariel Sharon. So how do we know the story? I don't, I don't think Ariel Sharon told the story, but a rabbi named Zev Siegel was so fascinated or astounded by uh, the story, he actually decided to confirm the story with the Rebbe. So Rabbi Siegel, whose son is a, a famous DJ today, or uh, has a radio show called JM and the AM, Rabbi Siegel asked the Rebbe, is it true that you stopped Sharon from going on the plane that was hijacked? The Rebbe said yes. So Rabbi Siegel asked the Rebbe, So why didn't you stop the plane from flying? Like, like if you knew there was terrorists, why don't you tip them off? And the Rebbe answered Rabbi Siegel, he says, do you really think I knew they would hijack the plane? I didn't know. But when Sharon came to see me, I had a sense he should not go. So I told him to stay. So, so what does that mean? Did the Rebbe know or not? I, I don't know. I, we know what the Rebbe said. The Rebbe had an intuition. Maimonides, Rambam, talks about this more in Vuchim, when he talks about 15 levels of prophecy, and he says that the entry level, this was called Ruach HaKodesh, having intuition. I ask you a simple question. If a tzaddik has intuition about the comings and goings of our material world, how much more so that a tzaddik has intuition when it comes to Torah? As it's brought down in Hayom Yom, that Ruach HaKodesh means as per the commentary of the Korban Ha'eda, an important commentary written on the Jerusalem Talmud in Masechet Shkolem, he says that Ruach HaKodesh means that there is a deep or latent, powerful element of Torah which the student or the scholar intuits. So if you believe a Rebbe has Ruach HaKodesh, and we certainly do, it's not unreasonable. In fact, it's the most reasonable thing in the world to assume that if a Rebbe says something, even if he humbly says perhaps, that in fact it's a Torah fact. And so, following the previous Rebbe's a take on the matter, the Rebbe leaves out Korev Hadover and he says, fact. This day is Rosh Hashanah for Divrei Likim Chaim. A final point on Ur V'chayes Nafshenu, an important point, before we move on to Rosh Hashanah though. When the room is dark and you can't see anything, if somebody turns the lights on, what changed? The simple answer is nothing. But now I can see. If there is a body that is lifeless versus a body that's alive, one person is sleeping, you can still hear their breathing. They'll be up in a few hours. The other, unfortunately, has breathed his or her last. 
What's the difference? In the first moments, at least, before rigor mortis sets in. The body's there intact. Nothing has changed, but it's lifeless. And the point is, Hasidus didn't change Judaism. It turned the lights on. It infused the Torah we study and the mitzvahs we perform with a sense of vitality, energy, and life. Somebody once asked the Friedrich Rebbe, so what did Hasidus come for? What did Hasidus want? At the time, he happened to be sitting in an ornate hotel lobby in Paris. And the Friedrich Rebbe responded to the questioner by pointing out the finer archaeological, uh, pardon me, architectural details of this beautiful room they're sitting in. You know, Paris hotel lobby. And the man is like, Rebbe, I asked you a question. I didn't ask for a lecture about about architecture. Please respond to my question. But the Rebbe says, but I am responding. Did you notice some of the details that I just pointed out to you before? And the man acknowledged that he hadn't. And the Friedrich Rebbe says, precisely. Hasidus doesn't add anything to Yiddishkeit. It illuminates Yiddishkeit. The things that were always there, but most people never noticed, are suddenly in plain view. The things that were prior they're intact. The whole mitzvah, the whole Gemara, the whole halacha. But it was lifeless. It was something that wasn't vibrant. Hasidus infuses a vibrancy in. And this, this idea of that's what today is Rosh Hashanah for. So what does it mean that it's Rosh Hashanah? It means that just like on Rosh Hashanah, every single year there is a renewed lease on life. It's as if the planet gets a new infusion of God's engagement. There's a new program written for the year. For this energy, for this element of energizing the Torah, the Yiddishkeit, our spiritual connection with Hashem, every year the spiritual connection that we're able to achieve through the study and the pathways of Chassidus is re-energized like on Rosh Hashanah. And that's happening right now. And everything comes first in a general way, and then it gets downloaded into the details. Yudas Kislev is the day that the beneficence, that the divine power, that the sense of energy is given to us on an annual basis. The Friedrich Rebbe, uh, pardon me, the Rebbe goes on now to quote this is the day of Rosh Hashanah for the teachings of Chassidus, which our ancestors, our holy forebears, we talked about this. Not the forebears of the Rabbeim, only our holy forebears. For if the Rebbe is Atata, then there are forebears. Have bequeathed to us the He, He, Teres HaBal Shemtev, My friends, when the Rebbe would speak about the Pasuk, a verse that Moshe Rabbeinu uttered to the Jewish people in the last hour of his life. A verse that the Gemara Mesech HaSukkah tells us is the first thing we should teach our children, Torah Tzivalanu Moshe. Why is that verse so important? Because to inherit, you don't need any kind of intelligence. You don't need any kind of emotional affiliation. You don't need any awareness. You need to be. A baby could be a minute old and the richest person in the world if he just inherited 
the wealth of his parents. To inherit, one needs nothing other than to be an inheritee. The values, the riches, the magnificence of Chassidus, it's ours for the taking. It's already been given. You just have to claim it. You just have to choose to open yourself to it. You know, you don't have to work at breathing. It's not a conscious effort. In fact, your lungs inflate by themselves as long as the airways aren't blocked. As long as you don't block yourself from the energy of chassidus, as long as you open yourself to it, the life comes in by itself. And it makes a difference. You know, the Rebbe Rashab once said that there are three things which are absolutely true, guaranteed. He said the three things are that money will drive you crazy, whiskey will make you drunk, and chassidus will refine you. And he says, and if you will see somebody who studies Hasidus and he isn't refined, well, it's like seeing somebody who has money who hasn't been driven mad. Why not? They didn't have enough. A person might partake of strong liquor and not be drunk because he didn't have enough. Enough liquor will make anybody drunk. Enough money will make anybody crazy. And enough Hasidus can make any of us more refined. Open yourself to it. It's our inheritance. He, he, Teres HaBal Shemtev. The Rebbe once talked about this idea of he, he. It's an expression of repetition. It's used in, in Torah literature to define something which is sanctified, made holy. The point, of course, is that this idea that the teachings of the Alter Rebbe, his incredible innovation of allowing ordinary people to partake of secrets of Torah that we probably will never fully appreciate and understand. And we're metaphorically like a blind person hearing about exquisite colors or about a person hearing impaired, hearing about the beauty of a symphony, but we have a way to understand it through various paradigms and parallels, through various narratives and, and, and euphemism. We understand something. And because we can understand something, because it can actually be absorbed and digested by our minds, it can filter through into our hearts. And that makes all the difference in the actions we take. And it enables us to sanctify the world in which we live. And now that we're on the Rosh Hashanah theme, the Rebbe Rashab goes straight for the jugular. Today, this is the day it all begins. What does that mean? Well, simply stated, this idea, Zahayim Tchilas Masecha, is a verse. It's a verse, a Torah verse, that's used in our prayer liturgy to explain why we celebrate the birth of the world on the sixth day of creation. You see, Bereshit Baral Okim, the moment of Genesis, you can call it a Big Bang if you want. That was on the 25th day of Elul. Rosh Hashanah is on the 6th day of creation. It's celebrated on the day that Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, the first human beings were brought into existence. 
And we say in our prayer, in our davening, in our liturgy, Do you know why Rosh Hashanah or the creation is celebrated on the day of humankind's creation? Because this is the day that the world becomes meaningful. For a world that simply functions by virtue of biology, not by consciousness and choice, is pointless. Hashem revels in our ability and decision to make the right choice. And He makes it very difficult, which is what gives the decisions we make the weight and the meaning that's attached to them. You see what I'm saying? That's what this is about. So Hasidus is what brings us into a state of real, true Avedis Hashem. In other words, Zahayim Tchilus Masecha means this is Shleimos HaKavona HaMitis. This is the consummation of the divine intention underlying the creation of humankind itself. The Briyas Adam Aliyaretz. Namely, that the ultimate goal, mission, and purpose was not simply that we perform mitzvahs, not simply that we study the exoteric or literal parts of Torah, but that ultimately each and every one should be able to absorb and appreciate the deepest secrets of Torah. And that becomes transformative. And that's what leads us towards the redeemed age, the time of Mashiach, when everybody will know God. This is all about, this is all about transformation. That it is on this day that it brings forth in a comprehensive manner, Rosh Hashanah, for the whole year. And therefore, because this is the day that that light is brought forth in a pluralistic or comprehensive fashion, this is now something that behooves us, mandates us. It is therefore our duty to rouse, to stir our hearts on this day. With a sense of inward and elemental desire. That drills down and expresses the deepest essence of our heart. An emotion. What should we be looking for? We should be seeking that Hashem illuminate our soul with the light of the innermost mystical spiritual teaching of Torah. That's what Chassidus is about, my friends. It's about revealing the essence. Getting down to the deeper rhythm. This is the day that Hashem chose to make it possible. And so each year on this day is a new infusion of that very same happening. The letter goes on to quote now a pasuk, a famous verse from the Shir Hamalot in the Tehillim. From the depths I have called out for, to you that's the way Psalm 130 opens. I'm sure you know that is actually recited on Rosh Hashanah and during Aseret Yimei Tshuva. 
And that's because on these days, we are supposed to reveal the core of our hearts. We are supposed to stir the deepest consciousness in a restoration of spirit, in coming home to Hashem, like the Rambam says in Hilchus Tshuva. He says, what's the shofar? This is the deeper meaning or an idea of the shofar is to rouse, to wake ourselves, to bring forth our essence. Deep down, every one of us has magnificent soul. Deep down, every one of us has a yearning and a profound desire to be close to Hashem. We need to bring that forth. Hashem is revealing the inner essence of Torah to us. We need to respond in like fashion. And of course, when we do so, when we call out to Hashem, when we call out to Hashem in order to bring forth this very revelation, what happens is that we are able then to successfully achieve precisely that. To bring forth the deeper element, the deeper recess, the deeper energy and motif of the Torah and its holy mitzvahs. Did you notice the word pnimiot, inwardness, core, essence, keeps showing up? That is what Hasidus is about, touching and revealing our truest essence. And when we do so, when we call out to Hashem, then we elicit, when we call out from the depths of our heart, we elicit the depths of Hashem's response to us. You know, the Zohar says that there are three knots which are inextricably bound together. There's Torah, the nation of Israel, and God. And it's through the Torah that we become knotted, that we become, we're able to weave our connection. And the more deeply we call out to Hashem, the more deeply Hashem connects with us. When we learn Chassidus, we're studying the deepest part of Torah. So we're using the deepest secrets of Torah to rouse the deepest essence of our neshama to connect to the deepest essence of divinity. So though it will illuminate the innermost reaches of our soul. And what happens then? <laughs> well, if we could illuminate the inner essence of our soul, then then we can be successful. Then we can hopefully be successful in changing ourselves, in banishing the natural traits that are evil or despicable. You know, things like arrogance and slothfulness, capriciousness, meanness, laziness, cruelty, indifference, selfishness. They're all natural. Not everything natural is beautiful. There are lots of elements of our personality with which we were born so that we could engineer things, root out the ugly stuff, and in fact change the very nature of how we do things. For example, if I'm kind because I like to be kind, I should work on changing myself, nurturing a kindness that is truly altruistic, rather than self-expressive. The teachings of Hasidus give us the ability to do this. Instead of expressing our nature, 
root out or re-engineer our nature. All of, all of our actions, all of our things, whether they be in the Aveda of tefillah, the passion efforts that are invested to connect with Hashem in a prayerful way, whether they be through the study of Torah, performance and mitzvahs, or whether they be in, in Yonei Elam, Hamukrach and Lakim Aguf, involved in mundane, ordinary, pedestrian things that are done for the right reason and thusly sanctified. Yiyu Bekavona Amitis, they should be with the true intention. L'shem Shemayim, for the sake of heaven, Asher Chofetz Hashem. That's what God wants. God wants this world to become his dwelling place. And when we live in accordance with God's will, we have become a microcosm of that dwelling place. When we bring everything around us into tandem with the service of Hashem, we are microcosmically perfecting the world that Hashem has created, doing our part to accelerate the process of universal redemption and re-engineering. And Hashem, who is not just a merciful Father, but the Father or source of all mercy. It's interesting that on Rosh Hashanah we say, of harachamon, michomecha of harachamon. But at Mincha, Shabbos afternoon, we change to avarachamim because that's the highest level of Shabbos. On Neila, on the end of Yom Kippur, we change to avarachamim. We go from God being merciful to God being the source of all mercy. We seek to connect to the deepest levels of divinity. Avarachamim, yerachem aleinu, may have mercy upon us and compassion upon us. And that He guide us in the way that is both upright, good and righteous. And thus, Yashar Yechazufaneme, the righteous, shall indeed behold Hashem's countenance. And that's how the letter finishes. This, my dear friends, introduces us to the book of Hayom Yom, to Yutis Kislev, in some ways, to Hasidus itself. And the Pasuk Yashar Yechazufaneme, Literally, the righteous shall behold his countenance. The Alter Rebbe says in Lakuta Teira, and this is found in many, many of the Hasidic discourses of the Rabbeim in their generations, that there's this idea of beholding his countenance is a sense of equanimity, where things that are in a higher realm or lower realm are all become equalized by the presence of God's greatness. And so, a person who has Various faculties or parts of his consciousness or personality can be placed before Hashem and being before such greatness, such revelation, has this way of equalizing everything. That everything from our most menial of actions to the deepest thoughts and feelings are all equally engaged in Avedis Hashem Yisbarach. That, my friends, is what Hasidus wants from us and provides us with the ability to achieve. So good Yomtev. May we be together on this Yotesh Kislev inscribed and sealed for a wonderful new year in the study of Hasidus, its illuminated pathways and practices and may we merit to finally see with our own eyes the ultimate mission, goal and purpose of the Hasidic doctrine, of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev, 
which are the ushering in of universal redemption and the bringing of Mashiach, Bimheira, will be Amenu, speedily, and in our days, Amen. Again, good jamtif. Thank you so much for joining. If you found this inspirational, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to like and share. And if you haven't yet, please be so kind as to subscribe, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thank you and have a wonderful day.